0: I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Diversity, inclusion, and equity are words that seem to be animating American business these days, but are companies really making any headway in achieving their stated goals? I tackled this question with Vernay Myers, Vice President of Inclusion Strategy at Netflix, who says DE&I, as it's called, is more than just bringing in diversity. It's also about the hard work of making sure those voices are heard once they are there. Myers advocates using an inclusion lens, one that pushes everyone at the table to broaden their imagination on what's possible. And in this conversation, recorded during a Washington Post live event on July 20th, she used the perfect example, an Indian wedding.
1: So it's like people have been going to like these traditional weddings forever and they think, oh, that's so beautiful, the little flower girl and the beach and the flowers. And then you go to an Indian wedding, you're like, oh, I don't know anything about weddings, We have not been
0: partying. Myers talks about how use of that inclusion lens at Netflix is what brought about the wildly popular Bridgerton. This was a rich conversation that covered so much ground that I'm going to get out of the way so you can listen to it right now.
2: Renee, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Hi, Jonathan. I'm so happy to be here with you.
2: Well, I'm happy to have you here. You have consulted for some of the biggest companies in the country, and every big company is focused on diversity, inclusion, and equity, or at least they say they are. So how do you measure the inclusion health of a company? What do you look for? What do you look at?
1: Well, of course, most people think demographics and the numbers, and certainly that is uh, very important to look at so you can see sort of where the gaps are. But what is harder to measure is the sense of belonging and inclusion and the ability for people to share their perspectives and to have opportunity and to move up and to be compensated. So the entire kind of employee life cycle has to be evaluated for you to really know is their health. One thing at Netflix, too, that we think about is. Who speaks and who doesn't, and who gets to dissent and who doesn't? Those are all aspects of health.
2: That's that's really interesting, that this focus on sense sense of belonging. And so to that point of, as particularly at Netflix, who speaks and, and who doesn't? Who was the was it you? Were you the person who said that you know it means something? And it might mean something more than you think when you're in a meeting and there's that one person or two people who don't speak.
1: Oh, sure. And I'm sure I'm not the only person who said that, but voices, so much of the work we're trying to do around inclusion is to remember that there are voices we have never heard. There are perspectives that have never been really given air. And if any company wants to move into the future and be resilient and competent and capable and and relevant right? and to serve their constituencies and customers, they've got to be on this journey of inclusion because it's where the innovation is. It's where the creativity is. It's where the excitement is. And so for us as a company, I mean, it's easy. We're trying to entertain the world. We dare not try to do that without getting many more voices than both the entertainment and the tech industries have had um, over um, since their inception Quite frankly,
2: yeah, we've sort of gotten ahead of where I wanted to go in this conversation, but I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it right here because this is really this is fascinating because I wonder. Okay, so you're paying attention to who speaks and who doesn't and and who they might be, and so you know I'm one of those people who would probably be one of those folks who doesn't speak. I, I sit I sit back. How do you convince? someone like me, I'm also introverted, but that's a whole other thing. How do you convince the people who don't speak that it's safe enough for them to speak? That not only does their voice matter, but what they have to say and their contribution matters.
1: Yeah, so you know as they say it's a process. Um and by the way, introversion is an aspect of diversity and we it's also language differences and accents and you know not neuro neurodiversity all of those things are sort of featured in any meeting. Um and so some of the things you do is you actually notice. See, that's the big deal. Are mm-hmm. you noticing who isn't speaking? Are you inviting voices? You know, when I'm on a call and I'm at, you know, and most of the folks are from another country or English isn't their first language or whatever, and I'm asking a question, I have gotten accustomed to counting 18 seconds of silence (laughs) Hmm. so that people who are like, translating what I said and are trying to get it back to English so that they can figure out what to say, or people who are concerned that maybe their opinion uh, might not be uh, welcomed, They you're giving people space. That's one. I think you're also um, really, when people do speak up, you say, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Like, especially if it's a point of view that's different from your own. So you're signaling that you're open, you're interested. Um, It's also about like before meetings and after meetings, like setting agendas, telling people what to expect, talking to people about the fact that you didn't hear from them, would love to, but they can also talk to you afterwards. So there are millions. Million different ways to get voices out. It doesn't always have to be like in the meeting. Not everybody is as gregarious or as, you know, um, I guess I would say assertive as people like me or as talkative, but some of the most brilliant ideas come from the folks who are listening. Right. So mm-hmm. trying to get to them is definitely part of how you want to be as a manager.
2: You know, I have to say that when I was still in college and I went to Carleton in Minnesota and they were in the middle of a presidential search and I was selected to be one of the students on the presidential search committee and we met with the man who eventually became the next president of Carleton and then my first ever boss after after graduation. But anyway, I didn't ask a thing. I didn't ask a question. I didn't say anything. And after the meeting, he came up to me and he said... I said, you know, very nice to meet you. Thank you for coming in. He said, you didn't say anything. I really wanted to, to hear from you. And it was that, he won his way into my heart by doing that one thing. Yeah. And we are, still, we are still friends today. We had dinner on my birthday in Minneapolis and he's 80 yeah, something I now. Yeah, I love
1: that story. I love that story. Um, you know, someone on my team taught me something really important too, which is to ask the question, not in the affirmative. What did I miss? What have I gotten wrong? Instead of going, is everybody good with this? <laughs> right? No. It's like, who's not good with this? <laughs> Right. Um, because people want to make you happy. They want to sort of go along to get along or whatever. But when you're signaling that you really are interested in the dissenting opinion, that helps. And like you said, you know, not everybody is vocal, right? So you're looking for other ways of input. You're looking at surveys. You're looking at, you know, after the, con- you know, conversations that happen afterwards, you're, 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 you're inviting people to things that are maybe not so formal and you're Mm -hmm. having informal conversations. So if there's a lot you can do, but you gotta want it and you've gotta intend it and you have to pay attention. This is the two Mm -hmm. things that I say all the time about doing well in diversity and inclusion. You have to have intention and attention. Those two things, without them, you're not gonna make progress.
2: Well, let's talk uh, more specifically about uh, Netflix. This year, you released your first inclusion report women make up half your workforce, uh, nearly half of your US employees, including leadership, are made up of people of color. So what impact uh, has that had on the work culture at Netflix? Are we seeing that attention and intention you were just talking about?
1: Yeah, well, let me just say, Jonathan, this whole thing is the long game. I hope you heard me say that in the report <laughs> Yes, as it's well. a process. It's a process. It's a journey. But, um, you know, what I hear every day is that people are, one, understanding more of each other's life experiences. They are, and this is sort of for me, the biggest deal, they catch themselves saying the wrong thing. So by the way, we're probably never gonna have a workplace where everybody's saying everything perfectly, right? Right, But what we would hope is A, people say less offensive things (laughs) less frequently, but also they can catch themselves. Like I've been learning all this stuff about ableism and Mm -hmm. the language that we use, that is really painful to people who have disabilities. you don't even realize you're like, oh my God, that's so lame. Right. <laughs> and the people are like, no, don't. write. Mm-hmm. So we're learning how to catch ourselves. We're learning. I think we're seeing more people um, feel powerful. And so we see people moving up into, like you said, our leadership um, group. I have to tell you, when I first joined, um, we have e staff, which is all the executives and um, sitting in a room for the very first time where almost half of the room are brilliant women it kind of blew my mind I'm like look at all these amazing women like to actually have be this age and have never been in a room like that is is both powerful but it is also um just a picture of how far we have to go especially in these corporate spaces
2: Wow there's a a lot in there that I want to follow up on I'm mean, go back to um when you were talking about the language that we use, and I'm wondering in how do you respond in that moment when something that is offensive is said, it is verbalized that was offensive or I take offense to that. how do you at Netflix and how would you advise um not just corporations and people in corporations, but just people. How do you address that in a way that is constructive?
1: Yeah. So it really is going back to this concept that, A, we're not perfect. So when people call you in, we try to call people in, not call them Mm -hmm. out. When people call you in, man, that's a gift right? Because you never wanted to offend a person with what you said. And now they're telling you that you have. So your job is to see it as an opportunity, right? And to be like, oh, wow. To correct, for it, right? You can apologize, you can correct, and then please move on. Don't go into the self-flagellation. Don't go into the oh my goodness, how could I? How could you? Because you never learned anything about this. You haven't studied it. And for now, and now you actually know that, so that you can then move to being an ally. So we talk a lot about which is Mm -hmm. what would an ally do in this position, which is to be like thankful that you're learning something and then curious. So you don't just learn in that moment and apologize. You're curious enough to go and examine and explore what you've learned such that you don't know how to say the right words and also what the experience of the group is that you may have insulted. So there's a lot of work in each of those little Mm sometimes those small situations, but if you take them seriously, you then become an ally, then you're in a great position to say to someone else, Hey, you know what? We don't, don't say that. Don't say that. And the person will be like, what really? And then you can explain it so that the people who are experiencing the insult don't have to be in teaching mode over and over again, while at the same time feeling the insult.
2: You know the, the the concept calling in instead of calling out. I just learned about uh, when I interviewed Robin DiAngelo, the author of White Fragility and now the new book Nice Racism, because uh, I noticed she used that and said, "Wait, why aren't you saying calling out?" And calling in is more, it's more affirming in that you want to engage in the conversation in a constructive way. I, with all this diversity, um, at Netflix is that translating over into programming like is all of all of this diversity of of thought making its way into what Netflix ends up putting in my queue putting in all of our all of our queues as
1: programming to watch well i have to ask you jonathan what do you think i mean you're looking at us I mean- you're looking at our shows you're seeing what we're putting up
2: yeah, no, and you know, of course, the 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 quintessential example is Bridgerton.
1: I was gonna um, say, seeing Bridgerton.
2: <laughs> yes, no, right, and so, and Bridgerton is the 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 perfect example because here it is a a period piece, one that we are used to seeing white people aristocrats. Um, I mean, maybe it's England, maybe it's the United States. It's been a while. I haven't gone back and rewatched it, but we don't know. But the thing that made it so powerful is it was multiracial. Yeah. And it was so, it wasn't extraordinary. It was, was, quote unquote, normal, as if that's the way the world is right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is you know, when we're working with people like Shonda Rhimes or Janet Mock or Ryan O'Connell, I don't know if you saw Special, which is written and directed and acted by a person who has cerebral palsy and who is gay, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at Lupin uh, coming out of France with this beautiful, brilliant Black protagonist, right? So I think... For sure it's showing up and we got a whole bunch of stuff from before. that's reflective of the old world right mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. we've still got lots of things to pay attention to when we look at how for example muslims are depicted or when we talk about colorism etc we still have an enormous amount of work to do but i think you can see that we are creating such excitement and so such um innovation just by changing who's writing, who's directing, who's behind the camera, who's in front of the camera, all of those things matter. And it doesn't mean that any one group is better than another group. It's just that what if we expanded our lens to see the stories of groups of people that we've never really seen, at least not on a, in an in authentic, in, in authentic way. So that's the excitement of what we're doing.
2: And you call, you call that the, quote, inclusion lens. Yeah. You probably talked, uh, talked about it in your, in your last answer. But by having a phrase, inclusion lens, that, that gets to what you actually, what you were talking about before, intention. You don't yeah. just have the goal of wanting to be diverse as a company and be diverse in your programming. You're actively going out and doing it.
1: Yeah. Let me tell you, this is not easy because almost everyone in corporate America has been given a particular lens about what's the norm, what's beautiful, what smart Mm. looks like what it talks like, and it's pretty much reflective of the people who have been in positions of power and not of those that have been marginalized or excluded. So when I say this is a long-term game, it's because deeply embedded in everything we've learned to do Is a preference for a certain group of people, namely white, namely male and straight and cis and without disabilities and of a certain religion, et cetera. So when you are really talking about trying to integrate an inclusion lens, what you're saying is let's look anew. Let's look freshly. Let's think about what this decision means to which groups. For example, I had a creative executive colleague of mine who said, you know, I keep noticing that when we're casting for families, they're all the same race, but there are plenty of families that are mixed race. Why don't we see that? You know, why aren't we seeing interracial marriages, etc.? So that's an example of a lens. But another example of a lens might be your hiring. And instead of looking for yourself to duplicate yourself, you're thinking about, wait, who would be additive to my team? What don't we already have in the ways of skills and perspectives and experiences and industries that would ultimately make us better? Um, Inclusion Lens is our way of saying this isn't going to be the inclusion team's work. Mm -hmm. Every Body has to adopt an inclusion lens if we're going to see a shift in culture because ultimately, Jonathan, it starts inside. If we start inside the company, it should show outside the company. Uh, But if we just try to do things on the exterior and we aren't thinking about the decisions, every decision we're making um, through that inclusion lens, we will not actually shift our culture.
3: monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
2: You know, I I have so many questions about how the audience has been reacting to all this, but I want to stick with this lens metaphor and widen the lens here uh, on the discussion of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So 72% of business executives in the United States are white. So companies are hiring diversity officers to make their workplaces more inclusive, and that's great. But What's your advice to companies that don't focus on more diverse boardrooms and C suites, um, diversity at the highest level?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is to me um, a no brainer, (laughs) which is that the board is making some really important decisions. They're really looking at what you're bringing back, and they need to also be questioning and asking through an inclusion lens. They also need to understand the future and what is happening, even generational diversity. Or if you think about the ways that we're starting to change how we think about gender, all of that needs to be part of the conversations. If not, we're just going to replicate what we already have. Um, It is also true that we will continue to choose leadership um, that is reflective of that board or reflective of the the CEOs who are already in position. So you have to bring that kind of inclusive thinking and working into every level of an operation if there is going to be a shift. Mm
2: Okay, so we have an an, an audience question that gets at something. This is not gonna surprise you. This this audience question comes from Rachel McKernan from Texas. Um, And Rachel asks, how do you find more diverse candidates for roles with a limited candidate pool? And and I love this question. It's a great question because um, we sometimes hear, and I'm sure you've heard this, uh, but we sometimes hear um, white managers say that they can't find qualified diverse candidates especially for management positions? Um, Your
1: response? Hey, I used to be like, yeah, right. Um, But then I started going, yeah, yeah, you're right. You can't. And that is because many of us have very limited networks. And so you are looking within this very limited world. And so the first thing I would do is I would say, to our um to our per, to our participant are you sure or is that just your understanding of who's out there because we all know when they used to say that about black directors or they used to say that about black actors and it turns out there are many of them right so first part of this work is to think about the systemic barriers that are preventing us and the social setups that are preventing us from even knowing who people are and what is capable, what people are capable of. So I think that's the first thing is like really question whether the pipeline is as limited as you think. Okay. The second thing is that we've been doing stuff like how are we going to expand the networks for our, um, for our executives, right? So we've done like a program where we invite um, people from underrepresented groups who are executives uh, to a dinner with our executives. And they talk about diversity and inclusion and some very uncomfortable things. But we've actually hired people off of those dinners because you start to become connected. You know, a little wine also helps, but you start to yeah, connected say. with people. <laughs> you loosen up. You find out about their life journey. They find out about yours. Then when you have an opening, You go, oh, let me call so-and-so. So So, first of all, we all do. And I'm not just talking about white folks. Everybody's got to ask themselves, if I invited the 10 most important people in your life to dinner at your house, if you had to do that, and I'm not talking about your family, just friends, who would be at that table? Because there's a little bit of understanding there about just how broad your network is. Having said that, there are definitely ways that racism, discrimination, lack of opportunity, all that has made it harder for certain groups of people to be well represented in certain industries. That's no lie. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, are you prepared to, one, take folks who are obviously very capable and have explored that and, and demonstrated that? and bring them in to these industries and do the kind of support they need in order for them to be successful? Because setting people up for failure is not the way to do it. Um, Or, and are you willing to put and invest in pipeline programs uh, where you're starting to move some of those blocks and those barriers away so that people can even know about a job? Jonathan, do you know how some people don't even know certain jobs exist? That has always blown my mind. I'm like, this is a fabulous job and folks don't even know it exists, right? So it's almost like, how do you open the door to see the folks who are out there? And how do you open the door for the people who are out there to see what exists?
2: How much, um, how much does the role of skepticism of diversity, equity, inclusion play in an organization's ability to widen the lens, open the door, provide seats at the table?
1: Yeah, I, I think quite a bit, but people don't want to say it out loud because they know like they were gonna be perceived as being a bad person. So first of all, I always wanna suggest to people we don't need any more good people <laughs> because <laughs> the good people are the people who are pretending that they're for things that they're not and um, also they're not doing their work. But I also think that it's hard when you've been super successful. And, and my, the clients that was the, were the hardest for me to help shape and change are the folks that were so successful. And the way it goes is, well, we've been successful doing it this way.
2: This way. Mm-hmm.
1: So if we change it, what if we're not successful Right. Or how could what we're doing be so wrong because we've been so successful. And my only point to that is you're not just because you're successful now doing a particular thing doesn't mean you are going to be in the future. And it's also very hard for people to fully believe in the power of diversity if they've spent so much time in a monocultural world. I mean, this is a dumb example, but if you've ever gone, like, have you ever gone to like a straight up real Indian wedding? Right. I mean, right. It's, off the hook, right? Like you've been going, so it's like people have been going to like these traditional weddings forever, and they think, oh, that's so beautiful—the little flower girl and the beach and the flowers—and then you go to an Indian wedding, you're like, oh, I don't know anything about weddings, clearly. Like we have not, been, we have not been partying, okay? And it's just because it's not on your it's not in your world. So you actually think your world is the best world. You think your world is the only world. Best and only is the thing that we are fighting against to move into inclusion. Because if you think your thing is the best, the superior and the only, you don't have the curiosity needed to go somewhere else and to find something else that is greater than how you've imagined it.
2: Wow, that's great, best, best, in, best and only. That is a great way to um, look at that. Also, that dinner party is a great example. We've got less than two minutes left, so I have to have you real quickly, as you assess the broad progress on these issues over the last few years, what are American companies, leave out, leave out Netflix, Just what are American companies, give one example of that they're get, getting right and maybe one thing they're getting wrong. Um, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion?
1: Yeah, you know, we can't have a conversation about that in 2021 without talking about what happened in 2020 and the tragedy of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and a whole bunch of people before and after them. What I think we have gotten, and let's hope we can hold on to it, is the understanding that this stuff is systemic, that it is built in, that there was a social hierarchy established a long time ago that hopefully most of us don't believe in, but nevertheless is alive and well and on automatic every day, selecting the same people, positioning the same folks and disadvantaging the same folks over and over again. So the the awareness around systems, I think it's been powerful because we were doing this whole thing where you're like, I'm a good person and I feel good about you. I like, you know, trans people, right? I have nothing against uh, Latinx folks but we thought it was all about interpersonal. Now we understand that there are these systems and these organizations and these policies that are constantly repeating themselves. And so what I'm seeing and hopeful for is that we are looking at how to bias-proof these systems, how to think about compensation, how to think about promotion. And externally, we are looking at, every company needs to be looking at its industries and how it can start to create more opportunity, more equitably in those industries. And so it's both an inside and an outside game That is what I'm seeing. And because I've been at this for 20 plus years, I know people can forget. So I am saying, you know, structural racism. I'm saying words like oppression. I'm trying to remind people that unless we confront this, if you can't name a problem, you can't solve it. And so I would love for people to keep naming that problem and also looking at all the joy that comes from getting Mm -hmm. it right.
2: Renee Myers, we could sit here for another hour or plus uh, talking about this. It has been really terrific talking with you. We are out of time. Thank you very much for coming to Washington Post Live.
1: Oh, Jonathan, thank you so much for having me. I truly enjoyed it.
2: Thanks for listening to k Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.